But just a little review. Um, God has promised them deliverance. God said, don't worry, I'm going to save you. I'm going to send a spirit and convince him of a rumor and get him all wrapped up in his head. And he's going to make a stupid decision and, and go back to Nineveh where he's going to be shanked by his, his sons. And so don't worry, it's going to be fine. But um, he, hasn't, he hasn't left yet. Sennacherib and the armies of Assyria are still surrounding Jerusalem. All the rest of the tribes and all the rest of the cities have been turned to rubble. Oh, I'm trying to help you all remember what we've been talking about for months now. And Jerusalem is left. It's like, you know, it's the, it's the apocalypse. It's the, the last moment. And uh, Hezekiah, the, you know, he is the Davidic king. And all the refugees that trusted in the word of Isaiah, basically, and, and trusted in the Davidic king or huddled in the walls of, of Jerusalem. And by the way, I did, I did uh, more research on this. And, and earlier I had said that the ten northern tribes were completely scattered. And that is true. But um, there was a remnant of each of the tribes that fled to Jerusalem as refugees. And so actually Jerusalem is filled at this point, at this po- point from what I can tell, not just with the original inhabitants, but all of basically the refugees and uh, very, the remnant, really. So for some, for some, in some way, God orchestrated for the Christians, for the true and genuine ones to hear Isaiah's word and be prompted to, to flee into the walls of Jerusalem. And um, I, 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 can't, I can't know this for certain but there's a lot of evidence that this is true because God promised that he would save a remnant from all the tribes. And so I th- they speculate that this is how it was done. So anyway, um, they're still out there, though. And uh, though the promise has gone forth that there will be a victory, it hasn't happened yet. And so Hezekiah receives the letter from uh, Sennacherib's general, the Rabshaka, And when he gets the letter, he goes to the temple to pray with that letter. And so we'll pick that up in verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And you'll remember the letter is a threat and a a warning and a call for surrender. Um, And it trash talks Yahweh some. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, that's the temple, and spread it before the Lord. So he takes the, the letter, he actually takes the letter and he goes to the temple and he's like, you know, that's where God's presence dwelt on earth in that time. And he spreads the paper out before him like, okay, you know, you see this? And um, I did that once in my life. It was interesting. I was scared to death. I was so desperate. Um, 9-11 had just happened, and I lived right outside of Washington, D.C., and I was in the inactive reserves. I was in the Army. And I just, you know, just got married just was like, I'm in, I'm in the ministry now, I'm, I'm working, I'm, I'm pastoring the Spanish church, and I have a great church and a great community, and I kind of knew what God wanted for me for my life, and then, bang, you know, the World Trade, not the World Trade, well, yeah, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, and then I got, I got a letter from the uh, military saying, you know, get your, get your stuff together, um, it's, it's possible that you get called up any minute now, I'm like, oh, gosh, I was scared to death, you know, and uh, I hated the army. No, no offense. I mean, Danny was in the army and he knows what I mean. It was and he actually did stuff. I did nothing. Um, I went to training. That's all I ever did was went to training and I did not want to go to war. I was terribly homesick. I did not want to leave Emily. Uh, she was distraught over it. I was distraught. And I remember I took I went into my 
a little one-bedroom house, and I went on the carpet, and I prayed, and I was like, God, and I spread the letters out. I had Hezekiah in my mind. I was like, I'm putting these, this army letter on the ground. I was like, you see it. Don't let this happen to me. <laughs> so I was distraught. <clears throat> but I remember spreading that uh, army letter out on the, on the thing, like, God, you see this. I need you to deal with this right here. Um, but, yeah, he spreads it out before the Lord. In verse 16, he, uh, he prays. And, and notice how he opens up the prayer. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So how does he begin his prayer? What do we, what do we call this? Praise? Yes, praise and adoration. And this is, a, this is a particular portion of his prayer that we call adoration. Now, some prayers are prayers of adoration, and all prayers, or maybe not all prayers, but often your prayers should contain within them uh, moments of adoration. Was that a bell or was that like a, a ring? Man, all right. Um, so a prayer of adoration. Let's just take this moment to review. What are the different types of prayers that there are? Confession. Prayer of confession, good. Ooh, is that like petition? Prayer of petition? <laughs> is that what you said too? Did y'all both say supplication at the same time? Aaron did? <coughs> Prayer of thanksgiving. That's great. Okay, good. What do we have? Adoration, um, petition, thanksgiving, confession. Anything else? Imprecatory, Imprecatory prayers, which are prayers uh, that God would notice your enemies and curse them or kill them or convert them. Anything else? Intercessory prayer, which is when you pray for, for others. Good. Y'all got most of these. Prayers of benediction, which are prayers of blessing on others. There's also prayers of illumination, that you, you're praying for God to uh, open up your eyes so that you could understand a situation or a text of Scripture. Right. And prayers for, for wisdom, which is close to prayers of, of illumination, like help me, guide me, show me, show me uh, what to do. You need a little you need some 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 light on the on the situation. Anything else? Any other prayers? I'm trying to think. I know there's more. But uh, it's probably good for now. Hmm. In church, what's the, uh, the first prayer we pray in the worship service? Anyone? Scott, Pastor Scott always does it. In invocation or call to worship that's right it's the prayer of the call to worship then we have the, another type of prayer a prayer of confession that happens after two songs then we have another type of prayer when we offer up to him our uh, offerings that's an offertory prayer and then we have right before the sermon that i pray the prayer of illumination um, and then after the sermon we have the petitionary prayer which is we're praying that he would accomplish all the things we just spoke about in the sermon. And then at the very end, end Pastor Kirk does a, a benedictory prayer, a prayer of blessing. And, and all of those prayers have within them a mixture of adoration, or at least when they're good, they do. <coughs> and, uh, <laughs> and of course, the way those prayers are ordered in our service, I don't know if y'all know this or not, but it's not an accident. Um, all of those things are done in that particular order on purpose, in order to uh, conform our worship service to the Bible as best as we possibly can. Make sense? All right. And uh, what I'd like to encourage you to do, like Hezekiah, when you get a chance and when you go into prayer, to think about um, offering 
praise and adoration to the Lord. Right? I think that might be sometimes a thing we forget to do the most. We pray, I would really like this. We pray petition or we pray confession. Forgive me for that. Right? Or we pray to heal this in accessory, but we oftentimes forget to pray prayers of adoration. Make sense? What does it mean to, to adore or to praise? Literally, what does it mean? It's real simple. Okay, but just say it in an in English sentence that makes it very plain for like a seven-year-old. Mm, I'm going to pretend to be a seven-year-old. I'll tell you when I get it. Huh? Compliment. I like that. Yeah, that's pretty good. You say it even simpler than that, though. Tell them how much you love them. That's good. That's good. Say nice things about them. Yes, that's it. Just say nice things about God. If you, if, you, if you adore your children or you adore your wife in your heart, that's good. But if you want to say something adoring so that they feel adored, then you would have to say something nice about them, right? And, of course, you know nice things. I see a lot of husbands and wives looking at each other like, you know, I could use a little more of that. Um, but you know, you, you know nice things about them because you can, you can see them, you can hear them, you can know them, right? Um, and so you observe some things and you experience some things and they do some things. And you're like, oh, you know, you know your hair is beautiful, right? Or um, that's a great job. I'm glad you did such a great job on your report card. You're a hard worker. That's good. You're adoring them. That's a good thing to do. You should do that. Um, but how do we know any good things about God? Like, how do we know about God? Can't see him. Yeah, he tells us about himself, doesn't he? And so it's a little interesting. The way you adore God is differently than the, different than the way you adore your wife or your children um, or even like, you know, one of your friends. Um, it's because you, don't, you can't know God unless he reveals himself to you. So he's, he's like, this is what I'm like. And then so we, th- we basically are repeating back to him what he tells us about himself. Anybody else, that would be really weird, right? But he's God, right? If, if your husband is like, let me tell you about myself. I'm hardworking. <laughs> I'm always considerate, devilishly handsome, right? And then you're like, yes, you are. You, know, you say those things back to him. It's a little weird, right? A little narcissist. Um, but God is, is, you know, it's narcissist when we pretend to be the center of the universe, you know. But God really is the center of the universe. So it's, it's not narcissist for him to do it. It's good and right. Um, <laughs> and so he tells us he's holy, he's just, he's, um, you know, loving, he's kind. And he is, in, what, is uh, what does he say here? He is enthroned above the cherubim. That he is God and God alone over all the kingdoms of the earth. He is the creator of heaven and earth. Hezekiah knows these things because God tells him, and he repeats those things back, right? But he's also adoring God in, in a context of a situation that's very difficult. So he's adoring him. He's like, <clears throat> God, you are the, are the God over all the kingdoms of the earth. And there just happens to be one right outside the door here that's causing major trouble for me. So you see how it's the adoration is not random. It's also in the context of the prayer. <laughs> Moving on to verse 17. <coughs> Sorry. Incline your ear, O Lord. Now, now we move into the prayer of petition. Prayer of petition. 
And try to be, try to under, be empathetic or at least understand this to some degree. If uh, Sennacherib's forces defeat Jerusalem, we all go to hell. Like, like this is a big deal um, because Hezekiah is the Davidic king. King David um, was his ancestor. Jesus is his descendant. So if Hezekiah is killed, there's no Jesus. If Jerusalem is wiped out, there's no covenant. There's no promise of Abraham. There's no seed. You understand what I mean? So this is a pretty important prayer that we really need God to answer. And Hezekiah just personally, well, his life is on the line and all his children and his friends and everything. So he really is, I mean, if you've ever been through something really, really, really hard, like the hardest test you've ever been in your entire life, that's probably at least the tenth of what Hezekiah is going through here. So he's really, he's really praying. You understand what I mean? Like he's desperate. And he's praying a prayer of petition. To God, verse 17, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Right? So what's the what's he asking God to do? Not too much just yet. Yeah, yeah, just hey, you see what's going on down here? Um I think that's great. Later, he's going to ask more directly for God to intervene and basically kill the bad guys. But right now, he's saying, hey, look, I got this letter here. <laughs> hear what that, do you hear what that guy just said? Right? And that's awesome. You know, it's great when you're, when, if, you're, if the enemy brings God into it. It's like, man, I was, I, that has never happened to me before. No one who has ever treated me like an enemy has ever said, you know what, I'm doing this because I hate Jesus. And, you know, and if Jesus were down here, I would do that to him. That would make it easier for me. You know what I mean? Because I'd just be like, oh, I see what's going on here. I'm not the bad person. You really are a bad person. And now you brought Jesus into it. Jesus, did you hear that? That would make it easier. I've never had that experience. Have you all ever had that? Usually it's someone's like, I'm following Jesus, you're not, and that's why I don't like you. I'm like, I think I am, right? <laughs> it's always, for me, it's always more confusing. Um, but here, he's like, did you see what this bad guy said about you? I think that's great. I think that's great. So let's talk about petitionary prayer for a second. Um, simply to petition the Lord is simply to ask him for something you desire or need. But I think there can be different degrees of petitionary prayer. Um, have you ever prayed and asked for something that you really didn't want or need that bad? Like, probably all the time, I would imagine. Like, it's not that desperate of a situation. You're like, hey, this would be nice. Um, but I do think there is a Holy Spirit-empowered petitionary prayer that um, where the Holy Spirit awakens in our heart, a, a very deep sense of need. Have you, ever, have you ever had just like, I really, really need this? And you didn't necessarily think it before, but I must have this. I cannot, <coughs> I cannot imagine going on in life without this thing, right? <coughs> Man, hopefully I can make it. I have to edit out every one of those coughs. Very annoying. <clears throat> um, I mean, think about if you had an older child that was a prodigal, 
I imagine that would rise to that occasion. God, I cannot go on if you don't um, re- return my child to you. You're the, you're the good shepherd, and you restore your sheep. Um, I need you to restore this sheep. And it's just the Spirit awakens inside of you a need. Um, and it's such a, a deep need, um, and it's a need that you know that you can't do anything to, to resolve, right? But there's a lot of needs we have, like, <coughs> man, hopefully I can make it. There's a lot of needs we have, like uh, our daily food. But who's really worried about that? You know, I could go a long time. I'd be all right. The naked and afraid, they go like 21 days and they don't eat. I'm not, if I pray for my daily food, I'm not that, I'm not sweating it really. Um, and I also feel like I could just go down to the store and get it, not a big deal. But there's some needs you have. You're like, I see, I'm looking out and I see no possible solution whatsoever. You know, I am done for. I can't even imagine going on if I don't get this thing. Right? And you really, I have to have this thing. I need this thing. Not in an idolatrous sense, but really in, in strategic love of the kingdom. Like, how can I even be a Christian? How can I, how can I go on if I don't have this thing? And, and it's a strong and it's a faithful, earnest desire um, given to you by God. So you know you need it. You know you can't produce it. You know it's a good desire right? Um, it's not a bad desire. It's not a lust or anything like that. And, and then, uh, I know, I don't even know if it'll help. You think? We'll try it. And then, Pastor Kirk had this same thing, this throat thing. He sent me a picture of the medicine that I need to get, but I haven't gotten it yet. Um, and then you have the confidence that God has the power and the willingness to meet the need Right? Have you ever, has that ever happened to you? I think that is um, a petitionary prayer that comes in from the heart of a Christian occasionally, where you're like, I have to have this. I really want this. It's a good thing. I don't see any solution. And I know you could do this. I know, God, you could do this, and you have to ask for it. That's what Hezekiah is, is doing. Like, I want to be married, or I want to have a child, or I want to have some Christian friends, or I want to have a job to provide for my family. I mean, you, everybody's going to get to that spot at some point in their life, or I want to be healed. Hezekiah, we're going to see later, he wants to be healed because God says he's going to die, and he's like in his 30s, and he doesn't have an heir yet, and he's like, I cannot die, right? <laughs> there has to be an heir. I'm, I'm the line of David. So there's going to be moments like that in your life, and... Uh, I think it's important to learn how to pray when you have, um, when you have those particular moments, right? Now, the first thing to learn about those kind of prayers is that uh, you have to have faith in God. Amen? You've got to believe that he's good. You can't go into this thinking that he's trying to make you miserable. You've got to go into it believing, well, he did send his son to die on the cross for me. So why would he be trying to just make my life miserable, Right? But another thing you need to do is you need to prepare some arguments. Let's look at verse 18. You need some arguments. God loves when we petition him with some good, solid arguments. Like when your husband is behaving stupidly or you really want something from him, you want him to change, stop doing something, or start doing something, don't you think of some arguments? Like, I hope you do. Screaming is probably not the best approach. Like, 
<laughs> or if your boss, you really want your boss to start doing something or not do something or change in some way or a friend or or if you're just trying to do a business deal or you're trying to talk your brother or sister into going along with your plan for what we're going to do this Saturday. What do we do? We usually are like, hey, look, this is going to be fun, right? We're going to do this. This is going to happen. And then this. And what about this? And what about that? Have, how many of us do that for everything we want? <coughs> I talk with people all the time and, and half of every conversation is people just making arguments for things, right? But we almost never do that in prayer. Like in prayer, we're just kind of like, let me shoot for the hip for 30 seconds, right? Uh, just uh, like, uh, Lord, just uh, just do this and just, you know, daily bread and, and like, uh, you know, and, and cliches and just random stuff like we're autistic. And, and like, like God would never, like we're not that way though. God would actually accept that if that were the case, but we're not that way. In every other conversation in our life, we're like, we got reasoned arguments. If we were to go before a judge, wouldn't we have arguments? Yeah, of course, but we don't do that with God. I don't know what that is. I think we think maybe it's more spiritual to be dumb, right? And to sound dumb, right? <laughs> we, imagine arguing with your wife uh, just like, um, <laughs> you would never get your way. You would never get anything. Right. All right. So but listen to what he does. Verse 18. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hand, wood and stone. That's why they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth. And here's his good argument. He gives several good arguments, but this is one that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Do you see the argument there? They've killed every god around here. They burn them all up. There's only one false god standing. If you would kill him now, then everybody would know who's the top dog. That's a pretty good reasonable argument, right? Right? If, you know, Sennacherib, the demon god of Assyria, anyone know the name of the Ninevite god, Nineveh? Marduk, Dagon, Dagon was the Philistines, I think, you have to Google it, they had a bunch of them, but anyway, he's like, this is the top, it's top God, he's killed all of the other ones, you kill him now, all the kingdoms will know that you are God, Dagon, dude, nice, are you sure, all right, (laughs) so, so he's saying, and, and another thing I think he's saying is, God, this is a win-win. Like, if, if we win, you win, right? <laughs> I think that's good. We could probably analyze this for quite a while. There's quite a few arguments in here, but the Bible gives us several uh, incidences, incidents where people who are in desperate need make petitionary prayers for something they need, they can't live without, and they can't do anything about it, and they go to God with arguments, um, look at uh, Genesis chapter 32, verse 6. I'll show you another one. This is Jacob. He's fleeing from the slave master Laban. He's got his families. He's got Rachel's side, Leah's side. <coughs> and he's fleeing back into the promised land. And Esau hates him, as you know. And Esau is coming to make war with him. It's in Genesis 32, verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, 
we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. So he left into the, to Laban's territory, the foreign land, with nobody. It was just him and his staff, if you know the story. You should, because we went through Genesis. Now, many years later, he's returning to the promised land. He's got a huge family, and, but they're not big enough to take on 400 fighting men of Esau, and he's about to have all of his wives and children and everyone slaughtered. So, that's verse 7, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So, I mean, that's a tragic situation. You take all your kids and send some kids that way and other kids that way, so at least you have some kids left. I mean, that's a tragic situation. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Now, there's already an argument right there. What's the argument? It's an implied argument. You made promises to dad. That's right. And to his dad. You made promises. O Lord, that's Yahweh, using the covenantal name, who said to me, you said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. So do you see he's going to the Lord in prayer and he's saying, O God of Abraham and Isaac, who's made all of these big promises, you've told me to, and he's not being disrespectful. It's a good, humble argument. You're the one that told me to come here so that you could do me good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. He's saying, I'm not saying save me because I deserve it. You understand? I am not worthy of any of the good gifts. I'm, so your argument should never be, I deserve this, God. You know, look what I've been doing. I've been serving you. I've been tithing. Do this for me. That will not, be, that will not go well, okay? You don't, you'd never put God in the corner, right? <clears throat> Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Why does he mention the mothers with the children? Because he knows God has made promises concerning covenant succession, concerning the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you said, I will surely do you good. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. He's saying, God, save me for your promises. Right? I don't deserve it, but save me because you chose you were going to save me. That's a good argument, right? That's a good argument. And of course, if you know the story, God does save him. Job chapter 23, verse 1. Here's another one. <coughs> Job 23, 1. Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That's God. That I might come even to his seat. That's his judgment seat as a judge. I would lay my case before him. And fill my mouth with arguments. So Job is like, I have a case to be made. Like a lawyer, he goes before the Lord. And that's, God is more legal than I think we realize. Make sense? Y'all understand when I say arguments, I don't mean fight or fussing. An argument is a technical term that means you're presenting premises to build on a particular conclusion. You're not pissed, right? When you are pissed and you start name-calling, that's called a fight. You know, husbands and wives should have discussions, disagreements, maybe even present arguments, have an argument. But what you shouldn't do is fight, right? And then beyond fight, well, I don't know if there is anything beyond fight. 
Huh? Divorce, yeah. <laughs> so we do prepare our arguments when we go before men. We ought to consider doing it before God. That's right. We ought to consider planning and thinking through it. If you want something from God, write, write out why, you th- why should he give it to you. Write it on a piece of paper. Spend some time meditating on it. Get a big, long list of why you would like the, these things. Make sure none of them say, says, you owe me one. Okay? <laughs> that is not how it works. But see, covenantal arguments, biblical promises, right? How you're going to strategically use what he gives you for his kingdom, right? Just Hezekiah does that later. He says, I've been serving you for these years. It's not saying do it because I deserve it, but I've been serving you for these years. If you give me more years, I'm going to continue to do that. It would be strategic for the kingdom. You give those, those arguments, and then you pray those things, right? I think we ought to do that more often. <coughs> it's okay to not necessarily have all your p- prayers planned, and certainly you don't have to have them all written out. You know, Jonah in the belly of the whale, you know, no pen and paper down there. And uh, <laughs> uh, so it's okay, to, and it's okay to just pray one-word prayers. Ah, you know, help me, or something like that. That's okay, too, but... It's not spiritual to pray uh, like you're uh, mentally incapacitated. And uh, it's, it's okay to go before the Lord, before his seat, and to offer your arguments. You know, so with that said, though, I think some of the problem is that um, it's not that we necessarily wouldn't prepare, but we just don't even know what to, what to want because we have so much stuff, right? I've been there before. I'm like, I don't even know what to ask for. I've got everything I want, really. Have you ever been there before? Or maybe not. I think in that case, that's why petitionary prayer can sometimes, it's from the Holy Spirit, because he awakens you and opens your eyes to potentials, right? He, he gives you a bigger vision, a broader vision of what could be so that you have more desires, more good desires, so you know what to ask for. We asked for God to help us build this building debt-free. We should have gone bigger. <laughs> like, looking back on it, he did it. He did it. It's almost like, yeah, he did it, of course. Do y'all realize that? I mean, who, does, who builds a million two debt-free in about a year? Huh? We need to keep doing it. What we should have said is we want to build this debt-free with a ton of margin at the end. Right? Because we built a dead free and it was like all the way down to right there, dead free. And got, you know, got a couple months left, you know. That's what you asked for. Exactly. That's what you asked for. Man, we, our faith wasn't big enough, though. You know what I mean? Or it, maybe it wasn't faith. Maybe it was our vision wasn't big enough. Like, what would we even do with more? You know what I mean? Think about your own Christian business, your own Christian family. What would you even do if you had more? What do you even ask for? That's why I think, I think a petitionary prayer, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to it. And, and I mean, maybe that's the prayer we need to ask is give us, a, give, her, give us a bigger vision. Give us a bigger desires, right? Yes, Tori? Yeah, pride, yeah. pride gets in the way of, certainly gets in the way of asking. And certainly gets in the way in receiving. Proud people don't want to take free gifts. Right? (coughs) Yeah, absolutely. 
<coughs> so I'd encourage you to really spend some time thinking about, you know, what could you ask for? What could we ask for? I'm, we have to do some paperwork for Stellar this year. It's like, what do we ask Stellar for? Yeah, but what do we ask God for, right? Stellar, he's gonna, he might give us 100000 I think he probably will. But what do we want to ask for? How is this true? We have to make arguments for him. We need like a whole package. And we have to show that we are doing things. But we need to go to God with more than that, right? Because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns a lot more than Stellar. You know, but what do we want? What do we want? We're at a loss, aren't we? What do we want? I know I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to cast the vision, though. I'm the vision caster. That's what they say about lead pastors. You've got to cast that vision like a spell. Cast the vision. <laughs> no, but we got to be praying about that as a church. What would God have for us? Wait, what? Uh, gonna fill up this space. Keep, keep, keep them coming. Keep y'all keep thinking about it. Y'all be and y'all be praying about it. We definitely need bigger classrooms if we want more kids in those classrooms. We need all the walls of this building not to come tumbling down necessarily, <coughs> but to be extended out, you know, 10 feet in all directions. Right, what? Multiply, that's right. <coughs> it is packed. It's packed. It's packed. I know. Man, that's something. So, and if obviously when you do make petitionary prayers, you got to be aware that sometimes God answered them, answers them in ways that you didn't see coming. And so be ready for that. You know, that's happened in my life quite a few times. Um, <coughs> um, let's move on. How much time? We got 10 more minutes? Yeah. <coughs> I'm dying up here. My throat. Let me get to the end here. Verse 36. So God's going to respond to his prayer. <coughs> and the angel of the Lord... Probably Jesus. It's one of the titles of Jesus in the Old Testament. Went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So they wake up in the next morning in the Assyrian camp. Verse 36. We find it? So God responds. They wake up the next morning and uh, the Assyrian army, not the whole army, but a pretty good number of them are just laying there dead in the field. And uh, that would that would probably do it. Right. And so Sennacherib finally flees. Verse 37. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. If you go to Nineveh today, you can go to Nineveh. The ruins are still there. And you can go into Sennacherib's palace, and you can walk through the main entrance of Sennacherib's palace, and the uh, wall has uh, drawings, I forget what those are called, on the sides of rock. They're, they're a type of inscription, type of mural, a relief. It's their reliefs. And, and it's, the, it's the siege and the battle of Lachish, which was like the second most important town in uh, Judah. But it's not Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Like when he went back home, apparently he 
did a propaganda campaign and had his victories over Lachish, you know, put on this giant palace wall like a billboard, um, you know, a PR campaign. And it's just interesting to me that it wasn't Jerusalem, which was the main, it was the capital. It would be like if you invaded um, the United States and you, and you went home and you celebrated your victory over New Jersey. Um, like, all right, we got them. Trenton, New Jersey, we took them down. You know, but what about, you know, the capital? The capital is what you have to, to win, but uh, that's it. And it's, it literally is still there to this day. It's fascinating. And uh, in verse 38, and as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, which obviously is another name for Dagon, um, his god. I'm just joking, obviously. <laughs> and Adremelech. All these names are in different languages. It's impossible to know. And Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. See, I told you he got shanked. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esar Hadan, his son, reigned in his place. So God um, defeats him and then humiliates him. He dies defeated and shamed, um, assassinated by his own sons. Pretty sad, right? Pretty sad. All right, that's that's good for tonight. Tomorrow or next week, we'll go into verse to chapter thirty-eight, and we'll look at Hezekiah's illness. He gets a fatal illness, a boil of some kind, a fatal boil, which sounds terrible. What's worse, Sennacherib or a fatal boil? I don't know, but we'll look at that next week. <laughs>